Welcome to the Creative South Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Frostholm. This week, I'm talking with artist and design educator, Alma Hoffman. Alma and I chat about growing up in Puerto Rico, struggling with self-doubt through college and graduate school, dealing with racism and bigotry because of her accent, and more, all right after this. It's no secret that I love Jack Prince. They're a longtime sponsor of the podcast and Creative South. Plus, they do great work. Whether they're making our pop-up displays and tablecloths or printing notebooks, Jack Prince is always there when we need them. This year, they are printing new Creative South t-shirts for me and the podcast stickers that have a coupon code on the back that gives you a great discount on all of their products just in time for Creative South. Speaking of stickers, Jack Prince will print any kind, shape, size, or stock, including full-color stickers with full-color liner prints for you to use as product labels, promotions, bumper stickers, hang tags, business cards, and more. Right now, you can get 500 3x3-inch die-cut stickers starting at $149. Plus, Jack Prince is giving Creative South Podcast listeners 15% off all orders over $25 when you use promo code SOUTH15OFF at checkout. Visit jackprince.com for your next order of stickers, prints, or whatever you need today. If you like the Creative South Podcast, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Every dollar helps us cover hosting costs, upgrade equipment, and keep the podcast going. With options starting at just $1 per month, you can help support the podcast and even wind up with some cool Creative South Podcast swag. When you become a Creative South patron, you'll get access to exciting Creative South news before anyone else. A shout out on the podcast thanking you for your support. Creative South Podcast stickers and t-shirts. So, please, help support the podcast by becoming a patron over at patreon.com slash South. Alma, thank you uh, for joining me tonight. Thank you for having me. <laughs> so, I, you know, it was funny, and I was just telling you this off air. I, I, I put out a call on Twitter, and it's been a few months ago now, um, asking for more female designers or people or illustrators or people who work in the creative fields. Um, I was interested in, and M- Mitch Goldstein you know, posts up this whole list of names and I'm going through them and I'm like, I'm going to have to do more research on them and them and them. And then all of a sudden I see your name and I'm like, well, I know her. I was on AIGA <laughs> with her. We live in the same town. You know, that, well, that's a no brainer. I'll go ahead and yeah. <laughs> so, it, so it, so it made it easy for me. <laughs> <laughs> good, good. Mitch and I have been following each other since I think 2008, 10 or 2011. Mm-hmm. And as I, as I told you before, I love, I love his work. It's very different to other people. Yeah. Yeah. Very much so. So, so why don't we kind of dive in from the beginning and tell me, where'd you grow up? Well, um, I grew up, I, I, I was born and raised in Puerto Rico. Mm-hmm. Um, so I lived there until I was like, 30, no, 29 years old. And then I moved to Iowa, Ames, Iowa, to go to school. What? Um, and I did my MFA there. What was that? What so, was that culture shock like of moving from Puerto Rico to the middle of just pure <laughs> white bread country? <laughs> well, there were several shocks. <laughs> the first one was that I arrived in the middle of a snowstorm. Oh, that'll do it. And yes. And my dad had, uh, given me a leather, a suede leather coat that came down to the knees, 
with the hood and everything. And I prepared for that flight with, I was wearing leggings mm-hmm. and, and the long underwear under the leggings, <laughs> socks. And then I had the, you know, the underwear shirt plus a turtleneck plus a sweater <laughs> and then the coat and then the, the gloves and the scarf and the hoodie and everything. But then I realized that when you went out to the snow, I was cold between the knees and the ankles. I was like, but I'm still cold from here to here. So what's the point? <laughs> what's the point of so many layers? <laughs> Eventually, as time went on, I I refused to wear layers anymore. I just got used to the cold. And if there's nothing you can do to you're gonna get cold. Yeah, yeah. So that was one shock. The other second big shock was that you know, in Puerto Rico, when people talk to each other, physical distance is not very pronounced. Mm-hmm. You know, people get close, people touch each other, they pat each other on the shoulder, they they hug, they kiss. And so when I came here and I wanted to talk to people, you know, my normal physical distance was not as big as theirs, you know, so I would get close to talk, not super close, creepy, but close. <laughs> and, people, and people would take a step back and I would be like, but why are they doing that? So I would go closer because I, I felt like I was I was screaming. Mm-hmm. So they would go back even more. And I would go closer and they would go back even more. And I realized that we were moving around. Later on, I realized that physical distance was a thing, in, you know, in, in the Midwest. Like physical distance for people living up there is a big thing. Yeah. So I learned to to take distance but oh my goodness at the beginning i didn't understand it i was like i don't get it you have to yell at people like why are they standing so far away (laughs) yeah i i can i can see that i I mean i grew up in the midwest i i definitely understand that you know this where are you from uh i grew up um i mean i grew up all over the place but i lived in minnesota from four till 13 right outside right outside minneapolis so i'm i'm you know even though I've been in the South now 30 years total. Um, yeah. Yeah. That sounds about right. That's about the right math. Um, and, and I still am very Midwestern at heart when it comes to stuff like that. And, you know, it's, it's <laughs> I still don't really have a Southern accent other than on a few words and the fact that and and you do this too, so I, I it's a product of living here. You say y'all. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's I think that's the one that I've picked up. Most of the other stuff I, most of the other weird kind of regional language, I don't think I've adopted quite as much. But y'all, you just can't, you can't <laughs> avoid it. It becomes ingrained into you. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, but the the one thing about the Midwest, I will say, is that. Once you make a friend up there, mm. they're your friends forever, oh, yeah. like forever. Yeah. Every time I go back to school, because I, I live, I, I not only went to school there, I lived there mm-hmm. and I had my children there. And every time I go back to school to visit, to my college, to my department, almost here, almost here, you know, it's like this warmth. And, and as long as the people I went to school with, like the administrators and the staff is still there, mm-hmm. that they know me. It was always very warm, you know, like, oh, I'm a here, I'm a here. That would give me a ticket, like a, a tag, so I wouldn't get ticketed at the parking lot so I could I could park close to the school. <laughs> it, it's just one time I had to move, and I was, um, 
I, I went through a divorce when I was in grad school, mm-hmm. and I I had to move in the middle of the winter. It was really really bad, and oh my goodness, people that you know they just knew me from from passing. They came to help me. They came to the apartment to help me move. Mm-hmm. It was it was very amazing, very touching. That the the help and I, no, I, I would I I love the Midwest because of that because it's 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 different. These people are really nice, mm-hmm. you know, very. They they warm up to you and they stay with you. Yeah, I would I would definitely agree with that. So let let's back up a little bit to growing up in Puerto Rico and and you know since since you lived there until you were thirty, you know what what type of kid were you? Were you an arty kid? Were you into sports? What what were you into? <laughs> sports and I did not have a good relationship. Yeah, me either. <laughs> we were very strange to each other. My kind of sports was the backyard and the. Uh, my dad had, uh, <laughs> we lived in a house in a big, ab- in a very busy avenue. So my dad put concrete in the backyard. We had a big backyard. So that was my thing. Mm-hmm. And I would put on the skates and I would skate there. And I would skate all over town later on when we moved somewhere else. And I would bike. And I would play basketball with my friends, but I would be the kind of kid who would break all the rules mm-hmm. and do and touch you and push you and whatever I needed to do. <laughs> And I would even slide under your under your legs because I was so small compared to my friends. And <laughs> so, but official sports, as in a discipline, like my kids are athletes, but I wouldn't do that. I didn't have the head for that, and I felt a sense of I will fail at this. So why bother to be so strict about it? So <laughs> I just, <laughs> you know, I was very clumsy. Um, I did like dancing, mm-hmm. so I danced for, not officially with classes, but I learned, you know, between friends and watching people dance and doing this and that, and I did dancing for a little bit, And but I was more of a kid who would, I would listen to music for hours. Sure. I, my mom divorced my dad, and then we went to live in another town that was a great part of my life. I lived across the street from the beach, from the ocean. Oh, wow. And... Yeah, and I would go to bed listening to the waves, and I would get up listening to the waves. It was it was amazing. But she made this. She had the she had designed the house with an architect, and she had told the architect that she wanted this wall of ornamental blocks, mm-hmm. and they were like offsetting each other, so you could climb. You could actually climb that. And I would climb every afternoon or every time I was down or I or I was very overwhelmed. I would go there with my boombox because that was the time of the boombox, <laughs> and I would go up there to. And put the music on and look at the horizon and the ocean. And my mom would say that I was teaching the the thieves how to break into the house because I would do that all the time. But oh, I <laughs> that was my thing, looking at the ocean for hours to no end. Mm-hmm. And I would draw. I would I would always had a notebook with me drawing everywhere I went. It was and reading. I would, I used to read a lot, um, and I still do. But I, it was very. People would always be impressed that I was always reading. I was always with a book and a notebook. Mm-hmm. Um, eventually, when I went to college, um, I became a rebel. So I didn't read anymore as much. And I didn't draw anymore as much. Uh-huh. Um, on and off, on and off, on and off. So it was a long it was a long process to where I'm at now. Sure. What, when when you got to college, what were you studying? Were you studying art? Were you What, were you, what did you study in your undergrad? Well, I was the kind of kid who didn't know what the, what they what she wanted to be in life. Sure. So I had this. I didn't know. I actually didn't know. So I 
my when at church at the church I was attending, there was a counselor, um, and he, they were very worried about me because I was I went to school at seven. I went to college at seventeen. So, so at young. sixteen, yeah. I didn't know what. Yeah, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I didn't know anything of anything, and so they had me take this um, this aptitude test, mm-hmm. and I scored very high on visual, and I needed to be outside and on the verbal. And I was like, what do you do with that? Like, what exactly do I do with that? And they said a couple of things, like, um, I remember artist, architect, um, I think lawyer. And back then, in Puerto Rico, there was only one school of architecture. And I, at 16, I applied. Because then, if when you're a freshman, what they do is that you are grouped with those people that are going to go to the architecture school. Sure. So I took the, the test. And I didn't pass that test. I was off by 13 points. That's not very many. Uh, yeah. At 16 years old, that crushed me and my dreams were done. Mm-hmm. And they, um, I still took all the genetic classes with that group of architectural architecture students that were going to go to the, to the architectural school. Sure. And they all told me, you should, uh, you should ask for um, a revision of your case. And they do an interview. They might hire, they might, they might take you. And I was like, no, no, I was so disappointed. Mm-hmm. So then, so then my journey of being everything started. I wanted to be a reporter, <laughs> but I was afraid of crowds and and you know and all these things and people hitting each other. You know, and I was like, what am I going to do when there's an accident or something like that? Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe. But I loved words, so I was like, maybe I should be a reporter. Maybe not. Then I wanted to be a lawyer, and I considered that for a long time, and I. I, I I would actually be a good lawyer except that I would start crying in the middle of the arguments because I get very emotional. <laughs> I don't know. I think, so, you know, I think uh, if you were a defense attorney, that might uh, get some clients off for you. <laughs> yeah, but I would cry and I would, people, and my friends would say, but what are you going to do when you get tongue-tied? Because they get tongue-tied too. And I was like, yeah, that's right. And then you have to lie. And so like, I don't want to lie. I cannot lie. So our lawyering was out of the, you know, <laughs> out of the list. Then I wanted to be, um, an administrative assistant or a secretary and my friends were going to have a heart attack. How are you crazy? You would never do that. And it's like, how can you say that? I'm so organized and I do everything. You know, I color code everything. I'm very organized. I arrange my drawers. I would be a very good administrative assistant. And they would say, yes, until your boss tells you to go and get coffee and you're going to come with the coffee and drop it on his lap. And I was like, oh. <laughs> so you're a little yeah, headstrong. Probably. Yeah. Probably I do that too. And then, <laughs> then I took a class, a drawing class, uh-huh. with an artist uh, who lives in North Carolina now, sure. whose name is Lope Max Diaz. He's a very well-renowned um, Puerto Rican painter and artist. And mm-hmm. it was a summer class, and I never took official drawing. I always drew. I always learned to draw on my own from what I saw, and I would just put things together, you know, like any other kid. Except that I would do it a lot, and I never took a class. Okay. And when I took that class with him, that was a summer, and he sat down with me one day and asked me, what are you going to do? What are your plans? What is your major? And I said, at that point, I wanted to save the world, because I always did. That. I also did that. I wanted to be a social worker or a psychologist. Gotcha. And I said, well, I want to be a social worker. And he said, why? And I said, oh, because I want to help people. And he was like, what for? <sighs> Well, because I want to help people. And he said, you're wasting your time. And I said, why? 
because you're talented, you're very talented, you should just go to art school. You should go and do art and become an artist. You would you would be one of those people who actually make it. And those were super big words for a kid like me. And I was like, really? What? Really? No way. I just didn't believe it. I did tell my boyfriend and my boyfriend's like, Alma, you know, those are big words coming from him. You should take that seriously. I was like, ah, no. So, but then, so I continued taking social work classes and psychology until I realized that the social work classes were so easy for me. I didn't, I didn't even go. I would, I was a very bad undergrad student. <laughs> terrible bad. Terrible. I would cut classes. I, I was, I think I was tired because in high school I was a straight shooter. I, I was um, 360 something or 370 something. I was an honor student. I was in the National Honor Society. Sure. I got tired. I wanted, I wanted to, I don't know. I, I got tired of the, all of that. I sort of wanted a break. So I just looked around at, at in school and I was not one of those kids who had a lot of freedom growing up either. So the, I, my friends would go out with their friends and hang out and do this. I was not allowed to do any of that. Mm. So for me, going to college was a, a, a ticket to freedom, if you will. You know, like I could go around, the bus would come whenever, and I would take the bus because I didn't want to learn to drive. Because if I learned to drive, then I had to give an estimated time of arrival. And I didn't want to do that. I wanted to say, well, it depends on the bus, you know, like when the bus comes because schedules in Puerto Rico are totally unreliable sure. so you know <laughs> so um I lost my train of thought um uh, anyway I looked around a lot so at that point um I realized social work is not going to work for me because I, it was easy that I understood the theories of behavior sure you weren't you weren't challenged was, by it though yeah and I was cutting classes and making C's and I thought so if I come, I'll make an A because not coming makes me a C, which is a passing grade. So why bother? Mm-hmm. That was my mentality. And then I decided maybe I should do something else. And I told my dad, I think I'm going to do art. And he said, what? And I said, well, my professor said this and this and this. And he said, Alma, just get it over with, you know. Get a degree. I don't care what. Just get a degree. He'd be in basket weaving. He would just just finish. <laughs> yeah. Get off the get and off the then, payroll. Yeah, and then I, I thought, well, if I do really art, I'm gonna lose a few years because mm-hmm. I, you know, I didn't have all of those classes. But if I do art education, I could I could you know I could get it done uh, early. So I did art education mm-hmm. and I took the rest of the classes, um, but I didn't teach art. Um, I went to teach uh, in junior high in a very, in a very, you know, in a neighborhood that was challenging. Sure. And I, they hired me to teach values, um, but then it was with the intention to send me to a, a training that was uh, for a, a program called Skills for Life, mm. which was invented. It was created by a guy here in the states called I think he's a philanthropist now, Rick Little. Rick Little had an accident. And he spent a lot of his time in bed when he was in high school. And that time, he realized that he didn't have this, the inner strength to handle all of that. Sure. So he created this course for high schoolers and junior high schoolers called Skills for Life. But you had to be trained. That meant that you couldn't be a traditional teacher with, you know, the, 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 the triangular hierarchy on the, on the top and you're at the bottom. Mm-hmm. It was more that you're a facilitator in the class. 
So you had to be trained for a weekend. And I loved that. I loved it. So I never taught art. I taught that for almost five years. Mm-hmm. And then I became bored. I became really, really bored. And I said, I need, I need a change. My then husband, um, I fill out all of this stuff for him to go to school. And we came to Iowa. And when we were there, I went to see the art school. And I submitted my, my portfolio of art education and stuff like that because I wanted to do the master's. In, uh, and, but I didn't know what. So the counselor said, what would you like to do? And I said, I really don't know. But then I look at what she had on the walls. And she had these posters like Paul Rand. Uh-huh. And I didn't know who he was. And I said, I want to do that. Whatever. What's what's that called? And she said, graphic design. I said, that's what I want to do. And she said, well, um, let, let me have your portfolio. And I will talk to the graduate coordinator of that program, whose name was Roger, is Roger Bear. And he said that I didn't have a portfolio ready to do that. I was not happy. Sure. <laughs> and he said that I had to go back to do an on, undergrad. And I said, are you kidding me? Oh, it was like. Slap. Kind of feel, that feeling I, of being heartbroken all over again? Yeah. And then I thought, well, you know what? I'm going to go. I'm going to spend here some years anyway. And I'm going to get older anyway. Might as well get older doing what I like than getting older and resenting what I didn't do. So sure. I did the undergrad. So I went ahead and did the undergrad and took the classes I needed to prepare myself. And our program... I was gonna do the. I was gonna do another bachelor degree, mm-hmm. and our program was a, a very, very tough. We had to be. You had to be reviewed. They a hundred people would apply, and they would only take forty. Okay. So it was very competitive. So I applied. I put my stuff on the wall. We couldn't put our names on the wall. You just get a number, and nobody knows your name. They they come and judge you, all the professors, on their time, and they evaluate all of that, and then you get a letter if you were admitted, and I was admitted. And the graphic design program. Mm-hmm. But then I realized that graphic design and I had a very different idea of each other. How so? And we, <laughs> because art, what I did before that was what I wanted. You know, I would draw whatever I wanted. I painted whatever I wanted. Sure. I I didn't have a, I loved calligraphy. I always, I always dabble in calligraphy, but I didn't have a inkling of what it meant to design on parameters, what it meant to design of restrict on restrictions. I didn't I didn't know typography from anything. I didn't know pattern. I didn't understand the grid. There was a lot of foundational stuff that I didn't have. So all the, so all the rules and structure, all that stuff that yeah. you kind of rebelled against when you got to college yeah. was being put yeah. back in place. So I was like, oh man, this is, well, I actually, it was very difficult for me. Um, very, very difficult. And I, I was the kid who did. I should have brought this. Um, I ha- I still have that binder. I was the kid who would do everything that is wrong in typography. Mm. And I mean everything. I would take the letters and balloon them like this, you know, <laughs> like a balloon. <laughs> do everything. And I keep that binder. And I show it to the students to tell them, if I could do this, you can too. Because I was, you have not done these mistakes. I have. I was also about 10 years older than all my classmates and they understood the computer and I had no, I, I was a child, you know, when I went to school, there were no computers like sure. that. So I, I had many things that I was battling, you know, against and my teacher was very, very tough. So 
I was going to quit. On October 31st, I remember I went to my advisor's office and I said to him, um, I think you, I'm going to give you my pink slip and here it is. And my professor was, my advisor was Edward Leonard. I said, you need to sign these papers. And he said, what are those? And I said, I am dropping the class. And he said, why? I said, because I can't take this anymore. I can't. And he said, you're going to quit? And I said, yeah. And he said, I don't think so. And I said, but you have to sign this. This is your job. And he said, no, 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 no. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what brought you here? And I said, well, I, I, he had the same posters on the wall. So I said to him, I wanted to do that, but... I can't. I'm not cut out for that. And he said, what project are you in right now? And we have this project that is one of the most difficult projects I have ever done. Mm-hmm. We have to design nine identical cubes. And every time with either geometrical figures, numbers, uh, letters, but you could not stretch the letters, of course. Sure. And all of that had to create some kind of every facet of the cube. There were six facets of the template. It was a T. Uh-huh. And every facet of the cube had to have a different design. And yet, when you put them together, the nine cubes, every time you rotated them, they had to create a pattern. Oh, wow. That was, yeah, it was very, very hard. But it was. I don't know that I could do that today. (laughs) Well, today is easier with the computer. We were doing this without the computer all by hand. Photocopies, color pencils, uh, acrylic. Now on the computer, it's a lot easier to do this. Anyway, I was like, I was, I cried like tears. You have no idea. I I would cry rivers. And I explained the project and he said, Alma, that's, that's a very difficult project. Don't feel bad about that project. I said, but I'm failing. This is terrible. This is awful. Blah, blah, blah. (laughs) And he said, why don't you give yourself to December? And if in December you still want to leave, I will sign the papers for you. So December came. And I was over the hurdle. I, that project was, I got a B in the project. Mm-hmm. Nothing was the greatest, but I got a B. And then we had the last project, which was really awesome. I really liked. And I got an A. I got a B in the class total. But then my hurdle was over. And I sort of started to understand it. Sure. I sort of started to embrace it. And it was partly because of the last project, which was more about communication mm-hmm. and about co- communicating a feeling and message. And that I could understand that. Mm-hmm. So from then on, I continued. Um, I don't know if I did. I answer your initial question. Yeah. No. Yeah, you have. So, you, so, so you, 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 you keep going in the undergrad program. You, you've gone past yeah. those big hurdles, you know, and and you start learning more and more. Does because you you said when you initially got there and they told you you know you couldn't go straight into the. MFA program, you'd have to do your undergrad. When you initially got into the undergrad program, did that change your perspective where you're like, where you thought maybe I'll just get the undergrad and then stop there? Or did you still want to go for your master's? Oh, no. See, once I got, I was hooked, I was hooked. Once I understood graphic design, once I understood visual communication, I, it was like, it was like a ring on the finger. This is for me. Um, Mm -hmm. And partly because I was very, very good at research. I was very, very good at vision. I was very good at writing. And I thought, okay, so I'm behind on the visual aesthetic thing. And I'm behind on the formal issues of design. And I'm behind on using the computer. Well, I'm going to capitalize on what I know. And I'm going to capitalize big. So I would create every project that I did. 
had a message and had a reason and had a metaphor. And I would do these big binders of research. And if you put me to talk about my work, I would tell you all the all the meanings behind it. My professors were went gaga for that. And then I realized that the other stuff you learn, you keep learning and you keep learning. There's only one way to go. You, you keep learning. So I became, I started to get better uh, on the formal aspects. I started to get better on the computer and everything sort of slowly came together. Sure. When I was in the junior year, I went to my advisor again, to Edward, and I said, you know, I've been thinking since I already have a bachelor's degree, why don't I go to the master since I've been two years in the program? My portfolio should now be ready for the master's. Mm. And Edward looked at me and said, you're right. Why don't you do that? And I said, really? He said, yes. So I applied for the master's. And then I submitted my portfolio. I submitted, you have to write an essay. I submitted, I wrote my essay on April Grimman because she was my idol. Mm-hmm. And I got in. And then once I got in, it was a different game. Then I, I learned, it was like a world opened up for me. Um, and I, I just, I loved it. I just, I loved it. The thing that became a hurdle again was the thesis, not because I couldn't write, but because I went through several issues, several health issues and several life issues that mm-hmm. made it challenging for me to get done on time. So I took, I took my sweet time, but I did Right. Well, well you, you mentioned, you know, earlier that, you know, as you were going through grad school, you were also getting a divorce and you've got, mm-hmm. do you have both kids at that point or? No. Um, well, I had my, I went through a divorce mm-hmm. and then, uh, remarried, um, Tyson, I remember, and his name is Tyson, and we had our first son in 2003. Oh, okay. And I, I graduated, uh, I graduated that year, 2003. Okay, so. And then my daughter. Yeah, that is a busy year for you. <laughs> yeah. I think that's a good excuse to, uh, you know, take a little longer on your thesis if you're going <laughs> through all of that stuff and and you know, pregnant and all the personal issues um, and. My dad died oh, that yeah. year too, well, in 2002, um, suddenly, abruptly, with, and he was healthy one day, and the next day he had a massive brain stroke. Oh, no. And, and then my brother died a year after. So it was, um, yeah, there were different, several things there. But Well, yeah, that, that's, got, that's, I mean, all of those things together got to, have got to take a huge emotional toll on you. Yeah. I would say. Yeah. Well, and I, I imagine, you know, because you said you had some health problems too, but I imagine with such a large emotional toll, that probably played largely into a lot of health problems you were experiencing as well. Yeah. Just just that stress. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Things happen. But, you know, it's, it's life. You just... Um, you take a break. My actually, I had to take a break because my I was teaching mm. as a uh, as a TA, mm. uh, and they would they trusted me a lot with the classes, so I, did, I had no supervision sure. and I, because I had been a teacher before. So they, you know, they were comfortable giving me classes. And but my professor, out of the blue, said, "You're not teaching this one semester." So you're not teaching this semester. And that broke my heart because I loved it. I said, why? And then I had the students emailing me, why are you not teaching? Well, I don't know. They just 
But it was the best thing he did for me because I focused on my thesis and I did the most progress that semester. Like I really, really buckled down and did the bulk of the work that semester. After that, it was just finishing. Well, I mean, do you think that in retrospect, that was the reason that he told you you couldn't treat, teach so you could wrap all that stuff up and, and concentrate on that? Probably. It was also that, um, you know, we had a good program. We had a good undergrad program, mm-hmm. but they were also trying to um, bump, bump up the, the grad and we had more grads and they needed also, they needed to give assistantship suit to them. Sure. So it, it was also rotating people sure. too, but then he hired me back as a lecturer and uh, when I had my son, he hired me as a lecturer again and he covered for me for the two weeks that I took off after I had Aramis. And it, you, know, you only took two weeks person. off? Yeah. Oh, well, I don't. It was all. I only had one class. It wasn't like I was not working full time. Sure. I only had one class. I'm finishing my. I was finishing the the, the, the thesis. But still, you just had a kid. <laughs> I know, but he, that's what he gave me. He said, "I'll cover two weeks." I said, "Okay." Huh? So I didn't know any better. So I just went. Back. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. When when you when you finally wrapped all that up and and life kind of got settled back down again. You know, what did you end up doing? What did you start looking for teaching roles right away? Did you, did you freelance? What what were you doing? I always freelance since I was in uh, in the undergrad. Sure. Once I once I got a feel for what this was, how it was, mm-hmm. and I understood designers think in a very different way than other people. I mean, that's that's just. There, I don't have scientific evidence for that, but it's, it's true. You can tell in the way they, they see the world and whatever. Uh-huh. So um, I would I would have people that I would work for or, you know, hire this person would hire me, this person, whatever. And I started to do things pro bono too, mm-hmm. both because I wanted to get better and because I wanted to give back to people. Um, and then we were... I will have always toyed with the idea of having a studio. That's been one of my dreams, having my own studio, like my own boutique studio. Mm-hmm. But I am a terrible, a terrible, you know how business people are so, um, sometimes so blunt and so unashamed of promoting themselves. Sure. And they are very on your face and they call you constantly. I cannot do any of that. Yeah, I'm just, not good at that either. I, oh my goodness, I get so self-conscious. Now, if it is for someone else, yeah, I'll promote that someone else. Oh, yes, you should go to him. You should do this. But for me, I'm like, I feel very, very self-conscious about it. So there was a dichotomy, the desire to do this and the this self-consciousness of promoting myself shamelessly like that. So for a while, we didn't know we were in Ames, Iowa. We had the kids and we... We really enjoyed having our kids. Mm-hmm. It was, I had kids later in life. Um, so, and I did, I travel, I was a dancer. So I would dance three, four times a week. And I did many, many things before I had kids. Sure. So when my kids came, I was like, I wanted to be with them. I wanted to be with them all the time. And I was thinking, what is the best way to be with them all the time? Or the majority of the time. And I, I believed in, if they went to school, I believed in having someone in the house to get to be with them. So there were many things I, I wanted for my children, and I didn't know how to, I didn't know exactly what would be the best way. Um, I had the master's, so obviously teaching was, 
the logical option. Mm-hmm. But I was I was a little afraid of that, so I started applying anyway, um, and I applied to the first school, which was Wheaton College in Chicago, mm-hmm. and they hired me, and we moved there. Yes, we moved there, and I that job didn't work out for a variety of reasons. I have had some tough luck, you know, in in, in the for several years, and anyway, that didn't work out, and then I went to work uh, downtown. Uh, Harrington College of Design, mm-hmm. which was traditionally was an interior design college, and it was very well known for mm-hmm. that. But when I heard about them, they had opened a communication design program, okay. and it was very new. And the chair of that program was Brad, Brad Kisner. And Brad and I met, I submitted my stuff, and he called me. We set up an interview, so I went to Chicago, took the, the the train, it was awesome. And I walked two blocks to the job and I met him there. And I have brought with me a, an orange folder where I put my resume and everything. And that was his favorite color ever. And <laughs> Brad loves orange. And that's his, uh, I think his website is that way, bradlovesorange.com. And <laughs> when he, when I pulled out my folder, he was, he was like, this is it. This is a sign you're hired. And I was like, you haven't even seen my portfolio. I don't need to. But you haven't. But I want to show you my portfolio. I don't need to. I want to show you my portfolio. You should see it. <laughs> <laughs> and we we hit it off. We became, he, we, he used to call me like his work wife. <laughs> uh, we became like twins. Everybody calls us twins because we got, we, we our working relationship was so good that I would come to him, Brad, I have this idea. And even before I said the whole sentence, he knew exactly what I wanted to say. Sure. And we were like in sync. It was it was very weird. It was one of the most it was it has it's been the best place I have ever worked at because of that relationship. Brad and I were like in kindred spirits. Mm-hmm. It was amazing. And together we did many things. This college though didn't have tenure, so you were either full time or part time. So I was a part time. Okay. But you could pick up a lot of classes because the, the rate per hour was really, really, really good. And so I was teaching four classes or five classes, you know, and uh, tra- uh, traveling, like commuting for an hour to the job because mm-hmm. um, I lived in the suburbs. But we would do a lot of stuff. We we had these plans for the, for the senior, for the masters. I helped the masters and we had these meetings and, and I... You know, I was part of the, the, the team that shaped the master's program. Um, but financially, you know, we were getting a hit because Tyson didn't have a job. And Tyson had decided, um, when I found the first job, Tyson decided, I didn't want to leave the kids in daycare. I just I, I just didn't want to. Sure, I understand that. And he said, you should teach. You should do what makes you happy. And I'll be a stay-at-home dad. And I was like, Really? like wow and a lot of people a lot of people don't understand this and a lot, a lot of people back home especially criticize me or they don't say it to my face but I can see, I can read it in their faces and I'm like well as long as since you're not paying my bills who cares what you yeah. think you know <laughs> so he decided to stay home and well, he would take I, I, I don't mean to interrupt but out of curiosity when you say a lot of people back home do you mean in Puerto Rico yeah yeah in Puerto Rico and people are, uh, I, I guess they're more open now to several things, but, you know, 
some people have issues or I guess not issues, but questions like, I don't understand what you're doing. And I'm like, well, that's a good thing because you don't pay my bills anyway. So that's mm-hmm. okay. Yeah. Um, but he, he did that. And when the workout, when the job that we didn't work out, I asked him, do you want to reconsider our status quo? And he said, no, you cannot stay here. You will go crazy staying here. You need to work. So you go and do your thing and I'll, I'll take care of the kids and what Tyson would do. I mean, Tyson has been the best person ever. Um, if I if if I wanted to move to this place because there was a good job there, he'd say, let's go. If that's what you want to do, let's go. Mm-hmm. I mean, very supportive like that. Um, it's like, I don't know how to explain it, but yeah, he's like that with me. So, <laughs> so when we were going... Oh, no, go ahead. Well, then the job... Um, I was supposed to be full-time at Harrington, but that the paperwork never, never came through on time, and I had been offered a job in Indiana. So it was very difficult, very, very difficult decision. Brad didn't want me to go, but he understood. I didn't want to go, but I but I needed the money. Sure. You know, we needed the stability. Being, um, working as a freelancer like that, and also teaching adjunct, like you don't have health insurance, you don't have any benefits, you cover everything on your mm-hmm. own. Financially, those five years trained us. I can and imagine. Also, I was paying for my health insurance out of pocket and because I have existing conditions, my health insurance, just mine, was super expensive. Mm-hmm. And that drained our finances and then the economy took a hit in that time, around that time, so, you know, we lost a lot of money, um, so we had to do something, and I was hanging on to hope that I was going to be able to stay at Harrington, but that didn't work out, so we went to Indiana. Okay. And in, in Indiana, we were there two years, um, two years and a half when I was hired here at the University of South Alabama. Okay. And now we're here. Um, so that's how I came about, all of this came about, still thinking that I would like to have a business someday, still thinking that I would like to have my own boutique studio, still thinking that maybe I could have a business training people or teaching them software or teaching them design, you know, design for non-designers. Things like that. Um, But I think I'm a better teacher than than I am at that I am a, a business person on this, in the sense that I, 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 the promotional part and the, the getting your stuff out there constantly, constantly, constantly. I'm not very good at that. I'm not a good at cold calling either. It's just, oh, I'm horrible at it. So I understand that completely. Yeah. So you, you've been at South Alabama for how long now? Five years? This is my fifth, fifth year. year? Okay. Yes. Mm-hmm. So you, you've been there for a while. You're an associate professor, you know, in that time, you know, how how have you seen your teaching style grow and adapt to where you're at and and, and things? Well, I, you know, I don't know. I've been, I've always been this person. Um, I am very honest with my students. I've always been this way, uh, even in... Uh, at Harrington, Whitton College, you know, and um, I've always been very transparent. I don't, some people, like, for example, some people have a lot of boundaries with the students in terms of privacy and this and that. I do barbecues in my house um, for them. Mm -hmm. And they, and they, 
if I don't do them one year, they tell me, well, we didn't have barbecue. You know, like you owe us the barbecue and stuff like that. I'm just connecting the No, that's fine. And so they come here to my house and they hang out for a while. Uh, they bring their meat. We we put the, the, the sides for them and the drinks and they love it. They have a great time. Um, we have, uh, I always did this too, wherever I was. I didn't do much of this in Wheaton College because it was, I think it was my first experience. Sure. And I, you know, like formally teaching like that. And even though I, I make great relationships with some of the students and they still in touch with me, I was not as open as I am now. I am, I think I'm much more open now. And as time has gone by, I become, I have become more and more open. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm an open book, essentially. I don't have many, they know, the, one of the first things I tell them, um, I, I, I have a physical condition. I'm very open about that. I have a physical condition and I deal with it. And sometimes it's very difficult to come to work, but I'm here. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have story time. So we have, I tell them, I sometimes the group is hard to break, but I do the story time because it, it relaxes them. You know, it, it helps them feel comfortable. And they, they, once they get going, talking about themselves, they're different people. They're laughing. They're having fun. They're relaxed. They are more open than when, whereas when you come to a class, when there's no connection, you're going to be guarded all the time. And there's that barrier. Mm. I didn't, I didn't want to be like, I, I don't, I guess that my experience as a junior high school teacher, um, doing that program skills for life sure. sort of molded me to be, in charge, but at the same time, be a facilitator rather than an authoritative figure. Though I do call the shots, you know, I do tell them, I still call the shots. I mean, it's still my discretion on this and that because I am the, the teacher of record, but you need to put as much meat on, on this table as I am. Mm. And they, they understand that, I think. And it has been a good, um, when I came here, the first year was a little difficult because, I don't know, they were guarded. Um, some of the students were guarded with me. I didn't, my evaluations were not great. But eventually, I don't know, um, I, I think I like to call it God gave me grace in your eyes. <laughs> it has been a lot better. Yeah. yeah. It has been a much better, yeah. It, yeah. Gotcha. They love story time. They they love it so much that if I, if I forget, if I come to the class and say, well, we need to do this and this and this, they raise their hand and I'm like, what? We didn't have story time. <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And they say the craziest things sometimes. And sometimes they use it to ask advice of the, cl- of the class on some problem that they're having. Sure. We have celebrated weddings in this story time. Because we have been part of the entire process because the student tells the entire process. Or we have celebrated engagements because the student tells the, t- the entire engagement process. When I went to buy the ring, what, what did she do when she saw the ring? We have helped people quit their jobs in story time. Uh-huh. It's, it's really a beautiful time. And we get things done either way. But design education doesn't have to be boring and doesn't have to be dry. Sure. It, do- it doesn't have to be all about design. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so, so, go ahead. No, go ahead, go ahead. I was going to say, so as you, you've gone through your career, you've you've been in, you know, 
a few different places, you know, and, and gone from teaching, you know, junior high kids in Puerto Rico to teaching college level stuff in Iowa while you're in grad school. And then, you know, a couple colleges in the Chicago area and then Indiana, and then eventually the university of South Alabama here in Mobile, you know, what are some of the struggles you've come up against during that, that time? During all those years? Yeah. Um, I mean, you don't have to like, well, you don't have to list every single one of them, but like, has there been a, <laughs> you know, recurring theme? Yeah. I mean, um, I'm a minority, right? And I have an accent. Sure. So that has been something that I have to deal with, um, in several, pretty much in every place. Um, it, it is my opinion and my experience that people don't realize how, and I don't mean, I don't even want to say the word, but how discriminatory they can be or how prejudicial they can mm-hmm. be or how, how many expectations they can harbor in their minds that they're unconscious of. Sure. Um, based on your nationality, based on your accent, based on the color of your skin. Um, and people don't realize the things they say sometimes um, are very hard, hurtful. Um, they just don't realize it. And you have, as a minority, I have to do, I deal with that on a daily basis. It doesn't go away. In academia, mm-hmm. one of my professor, Roger Bayer, who be, who was the one who said no to me or going into the master's the first time, he became my major professor for my thesis. Mm-hmm. And he told me, he sat down with me and told me that academia was one of the most racist places that you could ever be at. Um, that it was, it, it could be very difficult because there are structures in place that people don't. There, it's kind of non-tangible. You know? They've 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 like, been ingrained for so long that people aren't even aware of it. Yes, yes. Um, there are things that are asked of me or expected of me that if I was white or blue eyes or, or blonde, they wouldn't be. Mm-hmm. They wouldn't be expected, and part of the. Part of the issues I have had in all those years have had to do with that. It's very hard when, for example, a student drew me one time and she drew me with um, dark skin. And not that I particularly care if I'm light or dark, but I, I saw myself in her eyes, how she saw mm-hmm. me, and it was hard to see. It was hard to, it was hard to confront her perception of me. Sure. And Yeah, you're not, you cry. don't really have dark skin. I mean, you're not you're not translucent like me, but, <laughs> <laughs> but I call Tyson. Tyson is, I call Tyson pinky skin. <laughs> he has this pinky undertone. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, but it was, it was hard. It was when you, um, confronting that perception and she thought she was doing something nice and she was in her heart doing something nice. See that, that was, that's the most hurtful part. The open, uh, the open discrimination or the open prejudice is, is easy to take because you know what you're dealing mm-hmm. with and you know how to confront it. But what do you do when someone doesn't understand and someone doesn't 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 realize what they're saying, but but that what they're saying fits uh, a framework that is hurtful to you? That's really difficult to deal with, and you saying it is is going to make it worse in many ways. And so you have to 
just swallow it, um, which I did. I did. I I went home crying. I went home sobbing. It was it was hard. Mm-hmm. And but out of that, I did a project called uh, the City of Ethnos. <laughs> it was a fictional city mm-hmm. where it was all about racial racial cleansing. And this is about uh, this is in two thousand eleven. Yeah, and I, I ended up presenting a project in a conference in Greece, in Athens, mm-hmm. Greece. And, it, and from there, someone from Cornell University invited me to come over to present the project there, which I did. Oh, wow. So, yeah, so it was, I mean, every I, when I have experiences like that, I turn to my design work and I create projects. I, I do things that are... I use everything I know to create pieces that are that are communicating something very to the very much to the to my core. Sure. Um, so I have done that many times, and I did the I did a several several posters for the city of Edinburgh, and it turned out to be a fun and cynical and satirical project, mm-hmm. but it came out of that situation. So there's always some. I always try to do something with it. Um, but that's pretty much, yeah, that would be the thing that has been most difficult to deal with, the expectations that people have of females, of minority females, mm-hmm. and in several circumstances. Yeah. I mean, do you, obviously, you know, there's, I'm trying to figure out how to phrase this because it, it there's there's so many complicating factors that and then I'm not saying this to excuse this, but like, do you think there's this just complete misunderstanding of that Puerto Rico is part of the United States? I mean, you're you're United States territory. You're an American citizen. You, I mean, you literally you're a natural born citizen. Mm-hmm. You know, if you wanted to, you could run for president. There's nothing holding you <laughs> back from that. Though Puerto Ricans can't vote in the presidential election. So I still don't understand that concept. But, <laughs> um, you know, but only if you live in Puerto Rico. <laughs> um, just like if you live in Washington, D.C. or Guam or, you know, one of those weird carved out rules. Um, but But do you think a lot of that stems from people just don't realize that people from Puerto Rico are American? I guess, but I mean, it doesn't really matter because you, so people have an idea of what an American looks like. And uh, that little picture frame, I don't fit that. Right. (laughs) So, you know, I don't know that the people care so much about the nationality or the citizenship part. It's just that, well, okay, let me, let me give you this, this example. I went went to a conference in Virginia mm-hmm. one time and I had uh, reserved a taxi and so when I get in the taxi we start talking I always chat with the taxi drivers it's just it's my thing you know um, I don't if I go overseas I don't I try not to take the bus or the train because mass transportation even though it's cheap doesn't give you much of the culture of the people there but a taxi driver will tell you everything so I chatted him up and he, out of the blue, got the conversation and asked me, so, where does the name Hoffman come from? Because you don't look or sound like a Hoffman. 
Does he not understand how, like... <laughs> I was like, wow, that's... Okay, you know what? Let me oblige you. <laughs> so I said, well, it's simple, really. I said, my husband is from Minnesota, <laughs> and I am using his last name. You know, thing that people do when they get married. I mean, not everybody does it, but... It's pretty normal. <laughs> but that has happened more than once. That has happened like three or four times. And people sometimes get very close to me, like in my face. How come your name is Hoffman and you sound like Hoffman? And people think this is funny, but it's not that funny. No. It's, it's like, well, what do you mean? And then you, you start wondering. Should I walk you through the legal process of changing your name? Like, you, you can go to the courthouse and change your name to shoe if you wanted to. Like, yeah. there's nothing stopping you. Yeah, you yeah. Know? Like, you could change your name to whatever. That's one thing. And second, could you not imagine that maybe my father or my husband, like, you know, I, I, I just, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't ask questions no. like that. I just feel like, like, that's not appropriate. But some people think it is. And you have to... Sometimes I, um, sometimes I, well, no, I usually answer with a joke and say, well, you know, my husband is Hoffman and let it go. Because what are you going to do? You know, but that's not even the most offensive thing. That's just silliness. But things like that happen. And that's, (laughs) that's, to me, that's a frustrating, that, that would be more frustrating than just blatant racism because that's just, They don't mean anything by it. They, they, they're not, I mean, I'm sure some people do, but they don't think they're being offensive when they say that. No, no, they think it's fine. They think this should be honor because I'm curious, but see, and this is another thing I have, I have been with, I, I have an accent. So doing one of the things that I have, I I am sensitive about is, you know, my accent or my pronunciation of words or this and that. And I've been in situations where that has been an issue of when people have been not so kind or said things or whatever. And I, I am very fluent. I've been bilingual since I, I was a kid. I went to a private school. Mm-hmm. My teacher was American. And I, I the way we were taught English was... Once you come through the door, you forget your Spanish and you need to ask for everything in English. And if you want to go to the bathroom, if you don't know how to say in English, who are you? Unlucky you because there you're going to stay. My teacher was very strict with that. Mm. So I learned the language since I was a, a little kid. At 11 years old, I could, ha- I could have a conversation with any American that my stepbrother brought home. Because uh, the base was close to us and he would make friends and he would bring these guys. And I would talk to them like nothing mm-hmm. but i've never been able to lose the accent you know it's a thing and so i get very self-conscious and, and if someone makes me feel self-conscious about that i get very nervous very very nervous um people don't realize how that can be difficult when they make fun of your accent. sure it, it is difficult it rattles you because it's, it's part of who you are it, it's something you cannot really change sure you know i'm and <sighs> I'm not even going to equate this to being the same thing, but living in the South, I completely understand that because I have a Midwestern accent and I get looked at mm-hmm. and, you know, people are like, oh, he's a Yankee. And I'm like, <laughs> I mean, yeah, but I'm, 
literally lived in the South longer than I lived in the North at this point in my life. Yeah. You know, yeah. Where it, it, your ac- the longer you live somewhere, the harder it is for your accent to change. You lived in Puerto yeah. Rico until you were 30. Of course, you're going to have a Puerto Rican accent. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, so, get, you know. I guess you could go to those language classes where they kind of, you know, teach you how to get oh, rid I, of it. But I have done oh, okay. that. I have done that. And then my, my teacher, I actually did it at South Alabama. I did it in, in Ames, Iowa when I went to grad school because I wanted to mm-hmm. learn and I wanted to get better at speaking. And my teacher said, what are you doing here? And I said, I just want to learn. And he said, what do you want to learn? To, to lose my accent. Why? You shouldn't lose your accent. But I want to. No, you're fine. You don't need this. No, but I want to. <laughs> so I stayed. And fast forward, I did it, I did it here in South Alabama. Um, the teacher was, and the teacher said the same thing. You shouldn't be here. And I said, I want to be here. But why? It's because I want to learn to speak without an accent. And they, would, they were very supportive. And I said, but that's part of you. That's, this is who you are. So it has been, you know, um, for the most part, if people if people are not if people are not mean about it, if people are nice mm-hmm. about it, I can understand. I, I even laugh about it too. Like Brad, Brad and I had a, such a relationship that sometimes he would get up and imitate me. But that was Brad and I loved each other. Like, we were really good friends, and we are really good mm-hmm. friends. Um, we just haven't talked to him in, in a little while, but we we really I would stay at his house, you know. He, we, we were connected. But sometimes when people are making fun of you and, and you ask them to stop and they don't stop, that cuts me to the, to the yeah. core. It just cuts me to the core. But people don't realize that. And I don't know. So it, you just It's better to stay away from people like that, I guess. Um, so those have been some of those challenges um, uh, in general. And I, my experience is not unique. Sure. Other people like me have it. Um, I just, the part that I, I do tell my students this, I tell, we, we like to think that designers are beyond and above certain things that we disapprove mm-hmm. of or that we, we find reprehensible, but we're really not. And you will find designers who are really good people and you will find designers who are literally jerks because they exist. Mm-hmm. And some of you maybe never will have to deal with them and that would be awesome. Yeah, that would be awesome. That would be great. <laughs> yeah. Some of us, like me, I have found some of that, and it's not great. Yeah. <laughs> but you move on, and you go on to better things. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, kind of taking a turn from that, you know, we were, we were talking about when you face these struggles, a lot of times you'll take that, whatever you're feeling, and you'll put it into a project. Um, mm-hmm. and, and in the, the few years that I've known you, you've done a couple of big projects that have, you know, ended, ended up in different places. How did the, the one I'm thinking of specifically is you did one that was around kind of handwritten calligraphy and type and stuff like that. I'm tra- I'm blanking on where it ended up, but. Oh, well, since I've been here. Okay. So I did one, um, when I moved here, one of my friends in Indiana, um, He's the director of a museum in Indiana, mm-hmm. uh, and he he said to me, "I usually select. I uh, throughout the year I select. You know, I look at work of people and I judge and I you know select this work for whatever works for the museum. And I would like you to to show in my in the. It's a small museum. I want. I would like you to show to have a show with me. 
And I said, oh, that would be awesome. So I took the opportunity to do lettering for that project. And there were big pieces. There were as tall as, well, as tall as I am, but I'm short. So it's, it was <laughs> so like am I. Two, feet by, <laughs> two feet by five, sure. like banners. And they were I would work with them very physically on top of them, walking around them, dancing on them, you know. And they were all poems that I wrote. And at that time, I was processing some stuff from my childhood, mm-hmm. like some very painful stuff. So some of those poems have a lot to do with that. But the show in general was called Incomplete Memory. And uh, it had to do with this idea of when you remember things from your childhood or from wherever in your time, your memory is really incomplete mm-hmm. until you put it together with someone else that was there. And then the puzzle becomes complete. Because you only remember your part or the pieces. But then somebody, it's like when you're in a funeral and people talk about the person who died and they all have all these memories and that memory becomes one memory of this one person. Mm. But they all put something to that memory. And then when they walk away, their memories are incomplete because they need the, they need the thread, they need the fabric. Okay. So that was about that. And then one of those pieces ended up in the uh, Mobile Museum of mm-hmm. Art, uh, the Art Educa- Bay Area Educators Art Educator Show that they do uh, every year or every two years, I can't remember. So that ended up there. And from there, I did um, a, a show for the Episcopal Church of the Redeemer on Cody uh-huh. and Heathrow. And I did 10 pieces that were all lettering. And I did at first, I didn't know what to do, but then I... I realized I'm very bilingual, I'm fully bilingual, I'm very fluent, but there was one area in my life that I I don't, that I, I, I'm better, I prefer the Spanish. Mm-hmm. I usually don't care if I'm spoken Spanish or English, except in one area, and that is when I'm reading my Bible. And I learned the, the words of the Bible in Spanish, and I, I can see the verses, I can see the pages where they're at, and I can pinpoint to you where. Sure. But in English, I can, I, I will hear the, I understand the words and I can read the words, but I cannot memorize them that well. Right. And it's, it's, it's not that sense memory that's triggered when you hear yeah. it in English. Uh-huh. So I did this, this show that was called Visual Prayer. And what I did was 10 pieces that each one of them were ver- a verse that I had picked from the Bible mm-hmm. in English and in Spanish together in the same, in the same uh, composition. Mm-hmm. And I made it so that the text looked like he was crying or begging or, or there was a search, you know, something like that. Sure. So, but the 10 together, when you put them together, they were in order. And there was a letter. There was always a letter that was hidden in, in the composition. So when you step back, if you look at the letters, you found the letters that were hidden. It would spell, you are Lord. Mm-hmm. And not everybody got it. So I was so anxious when the show <laughs> opened for people to get it. And I'm like, did you get it? Did you get it? No. Did you get it? Did you get it? No. And then I have to explain. And then everybody saw it. It's like, oh, no, they don't see it. <laughs> so that was that. And then uh, this last summer in Otera, um, you know that they, every month they have an right, artist right. there. Uh, so in August, um, I... Um, coordinated this with Lucy Gaffer from the Mobile uh, Art Council, Arts Council, mm-hmm. and I called Optera, and Optera got in touch with me, and we organized the show. So I did some pieces from the Visual Player and some pieces from the Incomplete Memory. Mm-hmm. 
and that was there for a month and that was a fun show a lot of my students came to the opening night and it was great to see them there and now i am uh, i'm supposed to next year in 2019 i'm going to have a show at the mobile arts council i need to send the paperwork i haven't sent the paperwork <laughs> yet i have a space there i think it's in june okay. or july i can't remember mm-hmm. so yeah i mean i would like to do more i send work to a, a show uh, a jury show last year in florida it's called just my just my height and it's, it was for children but it was jury and I sent a piece that was called Blinding Light. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'd like to have, to me, I'd like to have words. I, I love words. I, I love letters. I love the texture of the handwritten text. And that's how I work out my stuff. You know, like I put them there and it becomes like a conversation with the paper, a conversation with. And I, and I work very physical on the paper. I don't work sitting down. I'm, I actually have a plank on the floor where I put my stuff and I'm there, there kneeling or laying down on it and moving it this way and moving it the other way. It's very physical for mm-hmm. me. I don't know why, but that, is, that just makes me, it's, it's amazing to me. Like, I live that. I'm, it's, it's like an extension of my soul, I guess. Gotcha. So, you know, we're, we're kind of getting close to our time. Is there anything exciting aside from filling out paperwork to get your project in 2019 um, that, <laughs> that, that, uh, that, you're, that you're working on right now? I'm working on a book uh, called Sketching as Design Thinking. Okay. And it's due on January 1st, 2019. And I'm against the clock. So that book is very important to me. Uh, I signed a contract in December with, I don't know how to pronounce their name, but Rutledge or Rutledge, something like that, the publisher. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm working on that book. That's the biggest, that's my biggest priority this year to finish that book. Sure. Well, you got a deadline, so <laughs> yeah. you've, you've got was eight months left. Yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. time, time to get writing. So <laughs> gotcha. Um, well, real quickly before I let you go, where can people find you online? So I'm very easy to find Alma Hoffman. You know, my name all together, two F's and two N's. Uh, there's another Alma Hoffman on Instagram with one N. That's not me. There, there's a, there's um, another Alma Hoffman on Skype um, who looks absolutely nothing like you. <laughs> yeah. Um, so Alma Hoffman all together. Skype is like that. Uh, Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um, LinkedIn, I call it LinkedIn, um, <laughs> Instagram, uh, Vimeo is that way, YouTube is that way. It's all Alma Hoffman. Okay, and we'll li- we'll link to all this stuff in the show notes so people can find you. Well, thank Alma, you. thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me tonight. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. This has been really awesome. Thank you. Awesome. Well, go out and hug some necks. <laughs> You can find out more about Alma on Twitter at Alma Hoffman. And be sure to check out the links in the show notes for more ways to keep up with her. You can keep up with the podcast on Twitter and Facebook at Creative SO Pod. And follow Creative South on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Creative South GA over at CreativeSouth.com. And I'm at Jay Frostholm on Dribble, Twitter, and Instagram. 
Jack Prince is giving Creative South podcast listeners 15% off all orders over $25 when you use promo code SOUTH15OFF at checkout. Visit jackprince.com for your next order of stickers, prints, or whatever you need today. For a limited time, new Skillshare customers can get their first three months for just 99 cents to get unlimited access to thousands of classes when you sign up at Skillshare.com using promo code CREATIVESOUTH. What are you waiting for? Start learning today. And remember, if you like the show, help support us over at patreon.com slash creative south. And if you like the Creative South podcast, head over to iTunes, Stitcher or Google Play Music. Rate us and leave a review. This helps more people find the podcast and allows us to keep getting awesome guests. Now go out and hug some necks.